but Adam. Some more exciting answers to the baffling and intriguing questions of science. Up and Adam, science on FBI. Science here on the show every Tuesday with Dr. Alice Williamson. But Ben DeClerc, who does a New Zealand music segment on a Thursday, it's called Across the Ditch. He's not going to like this next bit of news. New Zealand has a rat problem? I think it's not going to be news to Ben. Yeah. And, and hopefully he'll like the story that I've um, you know, brought in today. Um, in Back in August, um, as part of the Sydney Science Festival, I was talking to a radio producer who was over from the UK, who'd been over to New Zealand. Um, and she said she was working on a story because um, New Zealanders were obsessed with killing things. And I was thinking, <laughs> that's not, you know, that's not, you know, how I, what, how I think about New Zealand and the Kiwi people. And then she explained that it was uh, part of a huge campaign to rid New Zealand of introduced mammals. So um, there's a big, big problem in New Zealand that... Um, Many of the most, you know, iconic birds have developed or, you know, evolved rather in New Zealand when there weren't really any land mammals. So until the 13th century, the only land mammal were bats in New Zealand. So lots of um, the rather iconic um, bird species of New Zealand, including the kiwi and the giant kakapo parrot, actually lost the ability to fly. And that has been a real problem as uh, mammals have been introduced. So things like rats and stoats and possums and weasels. If you can't fly, you are, you know, pretty much you are a sitting duck for for these predators. And um, this has resulted in a huge loss in the native species of of birds that are, you know, native to New Zealand. So it's a really big problem. So they've started this campaign. It's called Predator Free 2050. Could you tell me a bit about that and what it entails? Yeah, so this is um, a campaign that, that, you know, the kind of uh, the release for the campaign was launched last week. Um, And this is is a really ambitious um, campaign that's aiming to rid New Zealand of possums, rats and stoats by 2050. So to completely eradicate these species with the hope of helping to preserve or to, you know, kind of reintroduce some of these very, um, you know, really dangerously um, dwindling numbers of species into the into the main population, the main island. So you mentioned that they were on a little bit of a killing spree. Yeah. Um, what kind of methods they used for well, this this is this is the the reason that i thought this article i've linked to this it's a fabulous article in the atlantic by ed young um ed young excuse me um and really this article is discussing some of the you know the big kind of questions that um the new zealand people and scientists are asking about how they're going to rid new zealand rid the mainland of these pests um because um it's a it's a really tricky thing to do so um actually the the largest island that's been cleared of rats to date is an Australian island, it's Macquarie Island and that's only 50 square miles um, in area and New Zealand is about 2,000 times bigger so you've got to think bigger and and many of the ways that rats um, have been eradicated from smaller islands in New Zealand has been to do with with poisoning basically Mm -hmm. often by people spreading that poison by hand Um, but that's probably not you know viable over a huge uh, landmass like the North and the South Island. So what lots of the discussions have kind of come around to this idea of gene editing and we've talked a lot about gene editing on, on the programme um, because 
because it's so important to today's scientific technologies, the idea of, of, you know, improving things for medicine, all sorts of other things. And one of the kind of most fashionable types of gene editing at the moment is CRISPR that we've also talked about because it's very efficient and, mm. and good at selectively removing genes. So some researchers think, why don't we um, genetically modify rats, for example, so that they're infertile, so it stops their population from growing? But there's obviously huge amounts of concerns about, you know, ge- genetically modifying any species, particularly in terms of whether it would be possible to kind of confine that genetically modified population to New Zealand Mm, mm -hmm. or or whether that would spread. And you know what the ethical implications of a decision like that are, both for New Zealand and also for the world, because, you know, at first it seems like, well, maybe New Zealand's a good good place to try this out because it's it's an island, you know, um, that's quite far away from, from... other other places but it's very difficult to to confine things to to spaces and one of the things that people are actually concerned about is that if New Zealand were to for example genetically modify a group of rats um, and try and keep them on say the North Island perhaps people would want to smuggle out these Ah. genetically modified rats and bring them to another country that has a rat problem because most people aren't really big fans of rats. Mm. And so it's very difficult to kind of contain this sort of um, research. So there are huge discussions amongst um, communities in New Zealand and between the, the government and scientists about what is actually the best way to go about achieving this goal? Because it's it's a pledge, it's sort of a promise to do this by 2050. Yeah. How would they make them infertile? Well, there would be, you would, you would alter something in their genetic code that, basically meant they were unable to reproduce and that's Mm -hmm. just one idea so the other thing is you could um you could put in a genetically modification that made them um sick or that made them um, particularly sensitive to certain things in the environment there's also ideas about um making rather than doing going down the genetically genetic modification route um, is to actually try to develop poisons that are uniquely poisonous to certain species. So to develop a poison that could kill a possum, um, but not kill any of the native species, for example. Mm. So there are many other different ways that people are thinking about going. Um, one of the most interesting conversations with, with respect to this genetic modification has come from researchers who are actually thinking about um, a better way to control this modification. So one of the major worries is that if you do something called gene driving and you kind of um, really force a gene to be passed on through a wild population, you know, it can it can happen very quickly. So researchers are actually looking at ways that you could perhaps maybe slow down this process so that it would kind of self-terminate. So it wouldn't maybe kill every single rat but it would really reduce the population mm. and then that this genetic modification would not be passed on so there are you know there's all sorts of different types of research avenues that that people are thinking about and you know looking at different expressions of interest for how different scientists can be involved in this project do you think it needs to be a global decision do you think we all need to band together and just eradicate rats well i, I don't know it <laughs> get I don't rid know, of them <laughs> i don't know so much that it, it's a, you know it's something that we need to do globally is to get rid of rats mm. i know there are certainly a, a pest population for for lots of areas but it's a really important thing for new zealand i mean um reading this article i was actually staggered to find out that um there are only 153 kakapo parrots in new zealand oh. so um you know this is this beautiful 
um, bird that's really very beautiful, very cute looking. People should Google it if they don't know what, what they look like. But um, they, they thought that this parrot was extinct in the 1960s and now there's 153 of them and they're mainly maintained in um, fenced um, kind of eco uh, you know eco restoration places or on islands that don't have rats but if you want to introduce those parrots back to the mainland um, you know it's a it's a really terrifying prospect if the you know those predators that kill them are still on the mainland yeah so it's a very important thing for new zealand um if that kind of native population of birds are going to survive um considering about 25 percent of the unique birds in new zealand are now extinct and that 26 million chicks and eggs are eaten by these predators every year oh i hate them like <laughs> lucy's riled up oh my god i really am um, but i really encourage people to have a have a read of this article it's a really it's a really great piece of science journalism it really is a great long form piece predator free 2050 is what we're talking about over in new zealand and you can check this out at fbiradio.com slash programs if you click through to up for it or head to fbi radio's twitter Alice, you went to see the legendary Paul Kelly last night at the Opera House. Yeah, it was pretty special. It was a great night. Would have been incredible. You were just saying though how there was a little bit of a a little bit of a thought process for you as far as where to sit, you know, your auditory perception I guess to get yeah. the best spot for sound and sight yeah I know um, I, we ended up sitting just kind of up on the steps uh, directly behind the kind of the sound um sound desk and the the sound was wonderful and I was just wondering you know maybe that's the optimum place to sit is you know in in the kind of in line with the sound desk and um, I wonder if people probably know this so we might get some text but I was also thinking about today's up and atom of course because you know I'm always thinking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no I was listening to Paul Kelly but um yeah this this is a story that's come out of uh, the University of Sydney and some Italian universities um in Florence and Pisa where some researchers have have really um kind of understood a, a lot more about how we process sound so um, whereas our conscious is kind of constant and we you know we're, we're always you know thinking and processing things it turns out that the way that we perceive things is actually um, more of a cyclical thing it's happening in a strobing sense so you know like a strobe light that flashes continuously mm-hmm. it turns out that we've we've known for a while that that's how we process our vision but these researchers have understood that that's also how we process um, things that we hear yeah, right. Um, and that rather than, you know, us kind of observing or listening to and taking in all the sounds from a scene, we're actually honing in on the most important areas for that sound, which helps us to identify important things that are going on, but also to build up kind of a 3D image of the scene that we're taking in so that we can understand more about our surroundings. Wow, so how did they experiment this? So they um, did actually some really quite simple experiments, um, but they they took 20 participants and they, uh, they tested them over 2,000 times each um, with a noise identification experiment. Um, and they used a theory that's called signal detection theory. And so if we just have a, a simple explanation of that, it's really our ability to detect um, a sound that's important, that has some kind of pattern or information above a background noise. And what they found is that um, each ear actually takes its turn in hearing a sound um you know at its maximum so this this you know kind of our listening is oscillating between each of our ears 
and that our uh, the kind of auditory cycles in our brain um, oscillate about um, six times per second. And this is interesting because it ties in with our speed of decision making, which is one sixth of a second. Mm. So perhaps our auditory processing is linked to our decision making. These these numbers seem to add up, um, but some more research will be, be done in this area. And you mentioned, you know, how it helps us taking a scene Mm -hmm. how does it help us focus well i mean i guess the thing is we are evolved to be risk averse so in you know in in our very early ancestors a sound could mean many things and it still does you know it can mean danger it can mean that an infant's crying it can mean an animal's um coming to get you um we know you can hear sirens on the street so we pick out the things that are important in a scene it could be the thing that's most important to us you know the person that we care about most we can hear their voice above the noise or our child's voice above the noise um, and it helps us to you know hone in on and, and not overly process a scene because if you think about all of the sounds in a room if you could hear everything at once it would be completely overwhelming so we have to be able to pick out the things that we perceive as being most important first and to process things in you know in a timely manner that enables to understand what's happening but also kind of where things are because we also tell a lot about uh, the distances how far away things are by thinking about how loud they are we know that as things get louder they're coming nearer things like that why and how do you think this suggests that our hearing and sight work in the same way well because researchers have have in the past shown that that sight also works in this cyclical fashion that it's it's oscillating it's not constant and i think these researchers now said they want to go on to explore the sense of touch to see whether all of our senses work in this in this way in this strobing fashion yeah wow we can check out this story as well through the link i mentioned earlier but i'm really loving all the sydney science you've been bringing us alice yeah it's really great to hear such awesome great australian science going on so we'll try and bring bring lots more before the end of the year we're lucky to have you in the studio every single tuesday and you'll be back again next week at quarter past eight we'll see you then see you next week this was produced by fbi radio in sydney fbiradio.com 